0: Well, if you've spent much time in the church at all, I am, I'm pretty sure you've heard the phrase God is in control probably many times. I certainly have because he certainly is. Even when our circumstances seem to be completely out of control, the truth is God is still very much in control. And yet there are plenty of Christians, in fact, even some pastors and church leaders who do not actually believe that. They don't believe that God is in control. I was just listening to a video this week of a pastor uh, saying that we should stop saying to people God is in control because he's not. The evidence that they point to to try and prove that God is not in control is the chaos and sin and strife in this world, right? How How could a loving God who is sovereign, who is in control, how could he possibly allow chaos and sin and strife to exist and yet... King Solomon wrote, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16:4. Well, does that mean then that God created evil? Well, no, it doesn't. First of all, it's important to understand that evil is not something that is created. Okay? Evil is actually the absence of Of something that is created. The the Apostle John said, all things that were made, uh, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, God created everything that has been created, and we know from Genesis chapter 1 that everything God created was good, which means evil is nothing more than the absence of what is good. Right? Evil is the rejection of what is good. And since God is the sum total of everything that is good, ultimately, evil is the rejection of God. So God did not create evil because evil cannot be created. On the contrary, God created everything that is good, including mankind. And because he loved us so much, he created us with the capacity to choose what is good or to reject what is good. In fact, uh, love itself is a choice so how loving would it be if he had created us without the ability to make our own choices right without the ability to actually choose to love God back if we had no choice but to feel love toward God the fact is that wouldn't be love at all my wife chose me out of all the other men in the world that makes me feel very loved but if she was forced to choose me how loved do you think I would feel So God created us with the free will to choose to accept or reject what is good. We get to choose to love him back or to reject that love. And yet knowing, of course, that some of his creation would reject what is good, which again is ultimately a rejection of him, rather than just taking his hands off of this world and saying, you know what, fine, I'm no longer in control uh, this world is run amuck, so I'll see you in a few thousand years when Jesus Christ returns, and I'll fix it all then. But until then, good luck. No, that's, that's not what he did, because that would be altogether contrary to the very nature of God. You see, God is love. And because he loves us so very much, he's still very much in control to the point that he even uses the lives of those who have rejected him to fulfill the good plan that he created for those who have accepted him. So even though the majority of people will reject God and his plan, he still remains in control to ensure that good plan that he's created for us is fulfilled in spite of the evil that is so pervasive in this world. Uh, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, the apostle Paul wrote, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. All. To the Colossians, he wrote a hymn about Jesus Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created uh, through him and for him. And he is before, what? All things. And in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. You understand these are categorical statements by Paul. They are absolute statements about the unquestionable sovereignty of God over all things. Which means if those statements are true, if all things were created by him and through him, and if he is before all things, and if in him everything, literally everything is being held together, then truly Jesus Christ is all that we need he is our answer to every question he is our solution to To every problem, he is the fulfillment of every promise, our supply for every lack. He is our resolution to every impasse, our confidence for every uncertainty, our courage in the face of every fear. He is our assurance in the shadow of every doubt, our peace in the middle of every storm, and he is our hope in the midst of every dire circumstance that we face in this life. Because in short, God is in control. And because he loves us the way that he does, he's taking all of the good and all of the bad and all of the victories and all of the defeats and all of our successes and all of our failures and he is working all of it together for our good. The Apostle Paul said, We know that for those who love God, all things... Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. You understand God could not do that. He could not work all things together for our good if he wasn't in control of all things. Right? In the words of R.C. Sproul, one of my very favorite theologians of our lifetime who passed away this week, he said, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. You see, God is in control. And the quicker you can accept that, the quicker your perspective changes toward all of the things that you go through. Both the good and the bad. Because if God is in control, then we don't have to be. Right? There's nothing in this world more freeing than that. Than letting go of all of the things we try so desperately in this life to control. Things that were never our burdens to carry in the first place. You see, if you're ready to let go of the fear and anxiety and stress and weight and pressure from trying to carry all of the burdens that that are crushing you, then pay attention because when Joshua finally accepts that God is in control so that he and the Israelites don't have to be, I'm telling you it is a game changer. They begin to wake up to it in the last chapter we saw last week and today we see it taking full effect in their lives as the pressure that is brought to bear upon them could not be any greater. And yet because they've accepted that God is in control, which means they are now allowing his plan to unfold in their lives on his terms. They finally experience what they've longed for and waited for their entire lives. So let's jump back into the next chapter of our story as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua. We're going to pick up the story at chapter 11, right where we left off last week, and we'll begin by reading the first five verses. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Joab, king of Maiden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Ereba, south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Napheth-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. If you've been following the story you know that these Israelites along their journey from Egypt have found themselves all along the way in some pretty difficult circumstances. That after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they lost their leader, Moses, the man who led them out of Egyptian captivity. They've traveled far through rugged terrain and overcome Tremendous obstacles of nature just to get to the promised land. They have faced hunger and thirst. They were betrayed by one of their own. And consequently, they were beaten in a battle and forced to retreat. They've been lied to, deceived tricked into making a covenant with some of the Canaanites. They have had to face their greatest fears when confronted by giants in the land, the great warriors who'd come to kill them. It has not been an easy road for the people of God to say the least, and yet nothing they've faced up to this point even comes close to what they're facing now. Hazor, or Tel El Kedah, as it is known today, was the strongest, most prominent, and most important northern stronghold in Canaan in Joshua's day. It's located in northern uh, Palestine, about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was much larger. Than even the other prominent cities of Canaan, Uh, the tell or mound itself that the central part of the city sat upon was about 26 acres, which was larger, or certainly on the larger end of the scale for Canaanite cities at the time. But Hazor included a massive rectangular enclosure to the north of about 175 additional acres. So over 200 acres total, far bigger than your average city in Canaan and probably Uh, It was probably the largest city in Syria, Palestine at the time. We also have a wealth of archaeological evidence about the city, including 14th century B.C. cuneiform tablets or clay tablets known today as the Armana letters uh, from the ancient cities of Pella and Tyre that describe Hazor as a great threat to the region. We have 18th century Mari tablets from the ancient Amorite city of Mari along with a a wealth of ancient Egyptians. Egyptian texts uh, from throughout the second millennium BC they all describe Hazor as an important and quite imposing place, which just confirms Joshua's assessment in verse 10, which we'll get to, where he says that Hazor was the head of all those kingdoms. And so Hazor alone would have been a daunting task for the Israelites to face, but it gets far worse because the king of Hazor has rallied other kings and other cities, even entire geographical regions and their people groups ranging from the Jebusites in the far south below Jericho all the way to Mount Hermon in the far north, the the highest point in northern Palestine. And they all come together to form one massive, overwhelming enemy force bent on destroying Israel once and for all. Joshua describes them as a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. And if that wasn't enough to ruin your day, Joshua says they had very many horses and chariots from about 1500 BC. The chariotry was the essential, really often the principal arm of the military forces in the Near East. This was the most advanced military technology available at the time. And the advancing enemy forces here had it in abundance while the Israelites didn't have it at all. And just to make it a little bit more interesting, as we'll see in verses 21 and 22, there still remained in Canaan some of the giant clans of the Anakim people from the hill country, right, the same clan that the great Nephilim giants in Genesis were descended from, where they are described as great warriors, men of renown, fearsome people, okay. This scene, as these enemy forces gather against Israel, this scene is more fantastic than anything ever imagined in any battle scene from a movie. It's Joshua, A man now in his 90s is leading a fighting force that is a fraction of the size, both physically and in numbers and in weaponry, than the enemies whose numbers are like the sand that is on the seashore. A great horde of Canaanite warriors with horses and chariots and kings and giants on their way to destroy Joshua and his men. It puts things into perspective, doesn't it? suddenly makes my own problems not seem quite so bad, all right, on the the lopsided nature of these two enemies meeting on the battlefield is really without comparison, and the situation for the Israelites would, uh, on the surface, seem to be completely hopeless, but there was more to the story than what could be seen with the naked eye. The Israelites' immediate circumstances could not tell the whole story, even if all they could see was a great horde of enemy warriors bearing down on them. Their current circumstances did not control their final outcome, as we'll see. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Ye shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and mizrathoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Okay, the picture that is painted in verses one through five could not be any more different Than the picture painted here in verses six through nine. In the first five verses, we find the Israelites uh, hopelessly outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, out of their league, right? In terms of military capability. In the first five verses, Israel's situation appeared to be utterly hopeless. Until we read verses 6 through 9 where it becomes abundantly clear that for God's people, even when your circumstances seem hopeless, God is in control. Okay? To, to those unaware, the way this battle was shaping up would seem profoundly lopsided in favor of the Canaanites when actually the exact opposite was true. Because the Israelites had someone on their side who was greater than any number of fighting men, who was greater than all of the horses and all of the chariots combined, who was greater than all of the great kings of old, who was greater than all of the giants in the land because the Israelites had the God of all gods, the king of all kings, the omnipotent creator who created the very ground they were fighting, for on their side and he knew about this day long before any of these people knew about each other long before they hated each other long before they ever even crossed each other's paths God knew this day was coming and he had everything under control you see the difference between verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 9 is the first four words in verse 6 and The Lord said. The difference between Israel being absolutely crushed by their enemies and Israel absolutely crushing their enemies was the sovereign word of God. Which means, if God said it, you can stake your very life on it. Because no matter how hopeless your circumstances seem to be, your circumstances are not in control. God is in control. Listen to me closely because he not only spoke to Joshua about his own seemingly hopeless circumstances, but he's speaking to you and me about our seemingly hopeless circumstances today. There's some debate uh, by scholars, by the way, as to whether Psalm 91 was written by David or Moses. Look, either way, it was written by a man well acquainted with hopeless circumstances and yet he was able to say that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not Come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him. my salvation. This was written by a man who was acquainted with trouble of epic proportions. But he knew, no matter how hopeless his circumstances seemed to be, as long as he held fast to God, As long as the Lord was his dwelling place, he would be protected and even honored in the end because his hope was not found in his circumstances. His hope was in God who is in control. That's as true for us today as it was for David and Moses and Joshua. No matter how hopeless your circumstances may seem today, Listen, your circumstances are not in control. God is in control. And in Him, there is always hope. Let's continue. Verses 10 through 15. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devouring them, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And Joshua did he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Israel annihilates the opposing armies in a stunning victory, but notice the special treatment of Hazor. Verse 10 says that Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. In other words, Hazor was the instigator who brought together the coalition of enemy forces against Israel. And so verse 13 says, none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. By the way, uh, the excavation of Hazor attests to the fact that the city was indeed violently destroyed by fire in 1400 BC during the late... Uh, Bronze Age when this battle occurred. Okay, so Hazor, the one city that should have survived this battle with Israel given its size and power and prominence and military at the time was the one city that was entirely destroyed because as large and powerful as they were, they made enemies of God's people. Which means they were not only fighting the Israelites, they were fighting God himself and to be sure The battle was the Lord's, which is something that Joshua and the Jews had to come to understand and rely on. The fact that even when people conspire against you, God is in control, right? It would seem that Joshua's response to Hazor here was out of a sense of revenge toward Hazor for conspiring against them when in fact... Joshua's response to Hazor was out of a sense of obedience toward God. There's a big difference. Verse 15 says, Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The point being, God was directing this entire campaign, as we've seen, against the Canaanites. Right, not Joshua. It wasn't Joshua directing the campaign. He was simply following the one who was actually in control of the situation precisely because Joshua had learned the hard way from the one time he tried to control the situation himself at AI and was soundly defeated, which is something we would do well to learn ourselves. That even when people, even when people turn against you, Even when others conspire against you, God is still in control. And he will deal with those people as he sees fit. Our responsibility is to obey his word on the matter, not our feelings on the matter. Right? Listen, as a pastor, uh, I've walked with people through some some of the most difficult circumstances, some of the nastiest divorces you can imagine. You can have two people who've lived together and raised families together for decades, and then they hit a hard place. Maybe they come to an impasse, and then you throw in a couple of divorce attorneys into the mix. And I'm telling you, the situation becomes incredibly toxic, incredibly fast. People turn against each other in the worst of ways. I've seen people where they work get a new boss or a new co-worker who turns against them and does everything they can to get that employee fired for no good reason. The truth is, the truth is I've personally been on the receiving end of of someone who didn't even know me. Who conspired against me and my family to try to get money from us under false pretenses? We had to get attorneys involved and try and prove that this person was completely unfounded in their attacks and accusations against us. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, in every one of those situations, I know well what I want to do. My human nature wants to exact revenge. But no matter how bad we want to take control of the situation, the truth of the matter is we're not in control. God is. And we would do well to follow his word, even when that means not doing what we want to do. Okay, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to mistreatment, and yet he wrote, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if, by do- if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him just something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 19 through 21. Maybe one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to put into practice because it's counterintuitive for most of us. We want to punish those who conspire against us. But look, God's Word is clear. He is in control, which means we must exercise self-control and great obedience to His Word. In every such matter. Which is how, by the way, you experience true victory in those situations. As good as it may feel in the moment, to lash out at those who've come against you, that never brings true satisfaction in the end. On the contrary, if you will submit yourself and your actions to God's word on the matter, you will experience freedom from the weight that those people are trying to put on you when they come against you. Because God takes up that weight for you. And he fights the battle for you, and he deals with people in his own way. That may involve you in the process, certainly, but ultimately the consequences for their actions are no longer yours to determine. God will repay them as he sees fit. King Solomon said, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 11:21. That is incredibly freeing for us to be able to let go and move on. Knowing that God will deal with those who conspire against us because the only person you're truly hurting by trying to take matters into your own hands is you. All right, let's continue. Verses 16 through 20. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Balgad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war for a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, Joshua making sure we understand two things when he wrote this part of the story first of all he's pointing out the fact that the people of God stood alone in all of Canaan he says there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites the inhabitants of Gibeon and of course we went through that the Gibeonites were already now grafted in among the Israelites so that no one here not one single Canaanite city or king or people group stood for Israel they were undeniably alone in Canaan. Secondly, Joshua wants us to understand that even in that, God was in control. He says it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. In other words, God's plan. From the very beginning, when they were still wandering in the wilderness under Moses, long before ever coming into Canaan, God's plan was for the Israelites to be isolated among their enemies so that his purposes for his people would ultimately be achieved. Right? Their their isolation was by design. You see, even when you're utterly alone, God is in control. We know that the Canaanites had become increasingly sinful and rebellious during Israel's time in Egypt and also during their wanderings in the wilderness because God spoke to Moses all the way back in Genesis 15 and told him that would be the case. God knew that the Canaanites would reject him in every way, so the isolation of Israel was God's doing because it served a greater purpose for their ultimate good. Their isolation was intended, first of all, to keep them from mixing with the Canaanites, which would have compromised their calling to occupy the promised land and make it a place set apart for God's people. Secondly, their isolation was intended to drive them closer to God so they would learn to rely on Him and to recognize that He alone was in control. You see, He used their isolation to fulfill His plan in their lives. And he does that for us today as well. I know it's, it's easy to view isolation negatively. The truth is, sometimes being alone is the very best thing that could ever happen to us. Because it drives us closer to Christ. It quiets all of the other competing voices that try to sway us in a direction other than the one we were called to. Fact is, isolation is often a very purposeful and a very profound work of God's grace in our lives. And I'll just tell you, uh, the longer I follow Christ, the less I believe there is anything in our lives that is random or pointless. Because God is in control and there is nothing about God that is careless. No, he's full of care for every single aspect of our lives, every detail, every breath that we breathe, every hair on our heads. God never does anything that is careless or pointless or random. Which means if you're feeling alone, cut off, isolated from others at this point in your life, then there's a very specific reason for that. Don't waste it don't waste the opportunity that has been granted you to come closer to Christ when you're utterly alone don't waste the opportunity to listen to his voice as he reveals the next step in your calling Don't waste the opportunity to rely on God on a deeper level than you ever have before because there's always a point to our isolation. There's always something good being produced in us and in our lives when we have no one to turn to but Jesus Christ. Don't waste it. I'm sure you know that you can be in a place in your life where you're absolutely surrounded by people and at the same time utterly alone. Our natural tendency is to lament those lonely times in our lives when actually we should savor them for what they are critical waypoints in our lives where God is calling us to be set apart, to draw ourselves near to him, to take that next step in our journey and to cut off every other thing that we've allowed in our lives that stands in our way. It's exactly what God was doing in the lives of his people. Let's finish our story for today and we'll see what God was producing in their lives out of their time of isolation. Verse 21 To the end of the chapter, and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel; only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So God had cut off the people of Israel, he'd isolated them from the Canaanites, and out of that isolation they were forced to learn to rely on God in ways they never had before. And it was in that time of isolation from the other people groups, the other cities, the other cultures in Canaan that Israel came to understand that God was in control and that he was leading them to do what was previously believed to be impossible, right? After all of the fighting In all of the battles with many great armies, including some of the giant clans, the warriors of great renown, the Israelites were finally able to completely cut off the greatest of them all. Something they never thought they would be able to do. The Anakim or the Anakites from the land, the giant clan, the oldest inhabitants of Canaan, the people the Israelites feared the most, the people who caused the Israelites to rebel against God in Numbers 13. And as a result, wandered in the desert for 40 years, but God was in control the whole time. In fact, back in Deuteronomy 9, he made them a promise concerning these giants through Moses. He said, hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. And here, out of their isolation, the Israelites are finally seeing that promise fulfilled. Verse 22 says that only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain, which, which were Philistine territories, which also, by the way, explains Goliath, who was from Gath in First Samuel 17. But the point here is... They were either destroyed or driven out of the areas inhabited by the Israelites. And not only had they overcome their greatest adversary, but finally, after decades of seemingly hopeless wandering, seemingly endless battles and long periods of isolation, Israel received their inheritance and the land had rest from war. The word inheritance in verse 23 has deep theological meaning. It is the ancient Hebrew word nakala, and among other things, it means heritage, birthright. You see, this was Israel's birthright. It was meant to be from the beginning of time because God was in control the entire time. So he was using every seemingly hopeless situation and every battle and every period of isolation for the Israelites to lead them into their birthright. The word rest in that same verse is the Hebrew word shakat. It means to be at peace. Okay, look, God has a plan for your life that has been in place since before time began. And he's using every seemingly hopeless situation and every battle you face in life and every long period of isolation to lead you into your birthright which means we have to stop looking at our wanderings and our battles and our isolation as random or pointless or worthless defeats and instead begin to understand them for what they are because even when it feels like our lives are spiraling out of control, God is still in control and he's using our feelings of hopelessness and he's using our battles and he's using our isolation to draw us closer to him him so that when the time is right we can overcome our greatest fears and cut off our greatest enemies and take possession of his promises for our lives you understand nothing you're going through today is pointless precisely because God is in control and if God is in control then you don't have to be once you accept that it sets you free You're no longer a slave to those feelings of hopelessness or loneliness and fear when you understand that God in His sovereignty is simply using those things in your life to prepare you for the next season of your life. It's all a part of our heritage as He shapes us into the people that we were created to be. And our inheritance, by the way, our inheritance is not a temporary one. It is a permanent, eternal, Secured by the blood of Jesus Christ, salvation that no one can take away from us. That no hopelessness can steal, that no battle can wrestle away, and that no amount of isolation can keep us from. Because our circumstances are not in control. Our enemies are not in control. We are not in control. So give yourself a break let yourself off the hook and accept each season of your life for what it is. Be at peace with each season of your life even when it's difficult knowing that in the end it is all working together for your good because God is in control. Let's pray.